Welcome to episode 99 of Seize the Moment podcast. And we wanted to welcome back a very special guest. We have Emmy Van Derzen today. As you know, she's an existential psychotherapist, philosopher, and counseling psychologist. She's principal of the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling at the Existential Academy in London and runs her own private therapy practice, Dilemma Consultancy, in London. She's a visiting professor with Middlesex University, for whom she directs several doctoral and master's programs. She's published 17 books on existential therapy and the challenges of the human condition. Her work has been translated into more than a dozen languages, and she has lectured worldwide in more than 35 countries across all continents. Her new book is called Rising from Existential Crisis, Life Beyond Calamity. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we have a copy here too. You've got it too. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's so cool about having you back on to talk about this book is literally so for our listeners who've been uh, kind of following us a little bit consistently so the, when we ended off our last conversation I'm, I'm not sure if you remember i mean in uh i think it was september 2019 we literally ended off on brexit so we kind of got cut not off different. because yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, we kind of got, well, we cut the show a little bit short just because obviously we were worried that it was going too long. And so we started talking about Brexit and what's perfect is that now we get to pick up on it. So the first question is going to be, Emmy, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of Brexit and just the firsthand account of what you've been going through the past couple of years? Mm, yes. So the, the book talks about this mm-hmm. um, because that's how I got into the book uh, to become aware of the huge number of people who had been plunged into crisis in their personal lives because of the Brexit referendum. So I am speaking about the 5 million European citizens who had made their lives in the United Kingdom. And I should add, on top of that, there are a million and a half British citizens who made their lives in the European Union, who have also had a very hard time. But I have focused particularly on the EU citizens who live in the United Kingdom because I'm one of them. And I immediately became aware that my position in the UK was no longer safe after the referendum. I had completely taken it for granted. I've been in the United Kingdom for over 40 years and it's my home country, as it were, you know, I don't I don't think of it in any other way. But there suddenly the way in which the referendum was conducted and the consequences of it meant that there was a kind of xenophobia which exploded in the country and we were suddenly being treated as unwelcome strangers and immigrants and quite frankly people were very rude and very unpleasant and said really horrible things like um, well we don't want you here anymore you're stealing our jobs why don't you just go back to where you came from or why don't you just go back home Well, of course, going back home is a nonsense. My home is in the United Kingdom. And exactly the same experience happened for millions of other people in that position. And it was shocking because none of us had ever in our wildest nightmares really imagined that we would be on the wrong end of racism, essentially. You know, many of us 
for being from different countries are very um, aware of the importance of diversity and openness to international exchanges and that sort of thing. But to find yourself suddenly at the wrong end of that, it's really a shock to the system, I can tell you. I, there, were, there were days when I thought, basically, I might get thrown out of the country. And I felt the need to um, become a UK citizen in order to safeguard myself. But when I applied for UK citizenship, I was refused. So then my shock was even greater and it started to feel like some kind of Kafkaesque scenario, you know. Um, I had created organizations, I employ, you know, a hundred people, I'm married to a Brit, I've paid taxes for over 40 years. How on earth could they refuse me? I thought it must be a mistake. So I simply protested and asked for them to reconsider it. And I was quite sure that it would be okay. But then it wasn't. I was refused again. And then I began to panic and I began to realize that something very unpleasant was at work and that I really couldn't take anything for granted any longer. I joined lots of organizations. I became aware of the thousands of people like me who were panicking and feeling helpless and some were getting depressed and many of them couldn't sleep anymore. Insomnia really was rife amongst them. And so we set up a special support service for people in that situation. And I also set up a Facebook group called Voices for Europe, right. which has several thousands of people in it. And so I became more and more aware of the real distress that was happening. Now it became a double thing for me. On the one hand, I felt this was a human rights issue and I needed to fight, which I did. I engaged politically very strongly and I did strange things like giving political speeches by the Houses of Parliament with an audience of half a million people and, you know, leading protest marches and screaming in the streets, quite interesting. But on the other hand, I became aware of the distress this caused. And as a psychotherapist and a psychologist, it became also interesting to me because what I saw happening in front of my eyes is what I have written about for so many years that mental and emotional difficulties are not just about the intra-psyche. They're not about the person's issues. They are about how we are in the situation, how we are in society. And they are also, I realized, about what the state does to us. That pressure that the state exercises on a group of people can lead to many people in that group going under. So not only did I then continue working with these people to try help with this, but also I began to research it obviously. And some of my students were doing very interesting research projects 
um, one on the um, military personnel that had been in active service during the Falklands War and who had seen their mates being killed in front of their eyes. And this student had followed them up and had realized that although many had coped really well in the moment, over decades, they had all divorced their wives, every single one of them. They couldn't communicate with other people. They were basically completely isolated in a negative kind of universe. And so I began to realize that these things are really, really important. You know, this is not just about trauma. This is about finding yourself disconnected from the world, finding yourself pushed by the state or by political events into an isolated, disenfranchised position from where communication with other people becomes impossible and therefore your system starts to shut down. And this is exactly what we saw all over the shop, you know, so many people who'd never had any mental health problems before became deeply, deeply distressed, couldn't function. Some became quite phobic, some even became suicidal. It's, it's really quite an extraordinary picture to see this happening in millions of people at the same time. I'm sure you could have done the same thing um, in the USA during the Trump era. Some people were deeply affected by that. Um, well, uh, Mexican, uh, immigrants who were pushed out of the country, there must have been a tremendous toll on mental health. I haven't looked into it, but it would be interesting to, to yeah. see that. Yeah. And of I mean, course, just things for... could be done with um, with service personnel who were in various other wars, you know, the Vietnam War, that's being, that's being researched incredibly intensively, and it has had a similarly terrible effect on people. Same yeah. with Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, no, I was going to say just from personal experiences, the people that we've known that are like of Hispanic origins, especially since uh, I think in the beginning of 2016, all of them were even people who were U.S. citizens at the time were incredibly worried that they were going to be deported. Yeah, exactly. And once you once you live with that kind of very fundamental insecurity in your life, where the 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 agency in your life is taken away by the state and you don't know what the future holds and there is no longer a sense that you can do anything about it. That really, really knocks you for a loop that really changes the way you find yourself in the world considerably. I mean, it feels that way with the, uh, with the pandemic, with the lockdowns. Exactly. Being cut off from each other, you know, that, that sort of isolation. Yeah. yeah. What I think is so um, pretty horrifying was, uh, and I think this is pretty much one of the most difficult parts of your book to kind of swallow, is the fact that some of these, uh, so people obviously who are refugees are already struggling because, you know, they're kind of isolated from their home, the homeland. Um, they're isolated, right, from their families. And then on top of that, now they're coming into a new country and there's this double isolation where, so now you're kind of disconnected from your homeland, but then on top of that, now you're disconnected, obviously, because of the pandemic and, you know, kind of xenophobia going on, you're disconnected from your potential new home so yes. I, mean, I mean from your experiences how have they have some of these refugees been dealing with these with these crises well that's really interesting so another one of my students who is himself a political refugee from iran 
did his research on um, Iranian political refugees in the United Kingdom. And what he found is that what makes the difference is if people have this ideological belief that they're doing the right thing, that they're making a stand, that they're, that they're well, basically giving their life over to getting away from a regime that is oppressive and that they're, they're making a kind of uh, statement. It's a blow for freedom, as it were. And that is what can carry them through and to then organize themselves with other like-minded people and to find a way to communicate about their plight and about what it is is all about, then they can thrive and they do better. Having said that, many of these people had to sacrifice their home life, their families, their spouses, their children in some cases. But the fact that they were able to act on their beliefs and go somewhere with it, as it were, made it possible for them to do well out of it psychologically. And that's the same thing we saw with the EU citizens, the ones that found a way to, um, to, to join the fight, as it were, to engage with what was going wrong <clears throat> and to write about it or speak up about it or even just post on social media about it and join up with other people, they did a lot better than the ones that became isolated and that gave up. So the, the whole idea about solidarity and a sense of belonging still to a group of people that will hold you up and that will give you a reason to live for, that is what makes the difference. It's not psychotherapy that makes the difference. It's how you re-engage with your life, how you rebuild that world that has been attacked and that has been disorganized and how you reorganize that to find a purpose and to find a connection and to find an audience to, to find a group that receives you in a positive way, because the worst thing is to feel like an outcast and to feel that you're no longer wanted and that you do not belong any longer. I think that is when it really goes haywire for many people. Yeah, it must have been maddening. Uh talking about, for example, being potentially deported to someone who this wasn't affecting at all. They probably, I, I remember somewhere in your book, you mentioned that uh, people weren't even that interested in that level of conversation. And that, that to you was, was uh, shocking, right? Very uh, shocking, really, yeah. really shocking. I felt that even sometimes in the, in the Remain movement, in other words, the, the British people who had wanted to stay part of Europe, when we started to talk about our problems as EU citizens, they didn't want to hear about it. So the, the first injustice was that in the referendum vote, the five million of us, some of us, as I said, who've been here for decades, weren't given a vote which seems incredibly unjust because we had a vote in other elections. So why not in this referendum, which was going to decide about our own futures, that seemed so unjust. Mm. But when we spoke up about that, even before the referendum, people who were in favor of Remain winning would say no, because people would find that 
the vote was unfair because there were so many EU citizens who were allowed to vote, or they would say worse things. What was often said to me was, but don't you understand? Now we have to look after our own. And then I'd say, but where do you draw the line? Who is your own and who isn't your own? How many years do I have to have worked in Britain to be able to call myself one of you? Where, where do you decide in, in what part of your, your mind is it right to just decide to eliminate some of the people that are your neighbors, that are your friends, that are your colleagues. It, it seemed so sharp to me that this line was being drawn in that way. It was really shocking because, you know, we were never were immigrants. When we moved to the UK, all five million of us, we were part of the European Union and we had freedom of movement. You could live anywhere you wanted. So we didn't immigrate. We didn't have to prove anything. But then suddenly it changed. We became different in people's eyes. And I think it was that different. It was that feeling of being denigrated, of being made into second or third class citizens when we had been equal. That is what was such a shock. It was strange to me that even the the home office where you would uh, submit your documents to, I'm not even sure. It seemed like you had everything you would have needed to prove that you lived there. Yes, I, I had absolutely everything. And, you know, we were all the same. We all did this very rigorously and thoroughly. And it's forms of, of dozens and dozens of pages. You know, you had to show your finance over six years. You had to show everything, all the travel you had done, everything. It's a very big job. And you don't do that in a haphazard way. But then to have that just rejected back in your face when you've just paid a thousand pounds, you know, for your application fee is really quite horrific. And it makes you feel as if there's no more ground under your feet, as if the rules of the world have changed and the goalposts have been moved and they're just not going to have you as part of that society anymore. They just want to put you in a different place. So, you know, it's very eye-opening. It opened my eyes very much to what my parents had been through in the Second World War. And, you know, in terms of what had been done, not just to the Jewish people, but also to the gypsies, to the disabled, to um, intellectuals, to communists, lots of people who had suddenly been turned into second-class citizens and had been deported. It felt a bit like that. Also, it made us all intensely sympathetic towards the um, black population, towards that whole battle against racism, because we suddenly felt like, hey, This is the same thing, you know, we've become undesirables, we're second rate, we're we're looked at askance, they don't want us in these jobs, they don't want us in these houses. This, This was the ridiculous thing, you wouldn't believe it, but, you know, several of my friends had difficulties buying houses, they couldn't get a mortgage anymore. 
they couldn't um, compete equally for jobs anymore because employers would get suspicious and say, well, how do I know that you still be here next year? You know, you guys may have to go back home. So everything was twisted and changed. And one of the most kind of inspirational aspects of your book was Joan's story. And so I remember you telling, uh, well, I think this was the part where he was telling us part of the story. So he said that, although I'm actually wrong. No, I think it was your end of the story where you were talking about, uh, you mentioned how he was able to overcome his anger. So the fact that he was angry is obviously kind of ubiquitous here, right? So in the US, we're highly polarized. Everybody kind of hates everybody. So, you know, you kind of understand how we're not able to, not even willing to see the other side. But what was so interesting and so really remarkable about Joan's story was that somehow as you worked with him as a therapist, as a therapist, that you guys were somehow able to come to a point of understanding for the remainers. Because here I can tell you, I can't speak for Alan, but it's very hard for me to understand the conservative perspective. So Alan is very good at that. So Alan is very good at trying to actually sit down and really kind of deeply find the roots of really, really difficult and polarizing views, right? I don't do that. So, I mean, just to tag that a bit, I mean, if somebody is so certain of their point of view, that they're willing to defend their defend it to the death right as if it's their own identity yeah i mean i wonder uh what what's what are their reasons what are their rationalizations exactly yes it's it's crucial to be able to do that as a psychotherapist isn't it in principle you should be able to be a therapist to anybody and understand any point of view, any perspective. You may not agree with it, but you should be able to be attentive, to be available and to work out where it comes from, why it matters, why it is important and where perhaps there's something irrational. But yes, that was a real achievement. You're right. You know, when when he began to um, be able to speak to the Brexiters and to not feel angry with them anymore and to actually begin to feel sympathetic towards them, because he realized that at the end of the day, we've all been played by, you know, the people in power. Most people in the population need the same things we all want safety we all want work that we enjoy we all want to be able to live with their families with our friends have some good times in life we don't want to have to worry about falling into poverty we want health care it's not complicated we're all on the same side we want basically the same things but we are manipulated into believing that we want different things, or rather that people on the other side want different things to us and that they're a threat to us. They're not. There are very few people who are a threat to us. The people who are a threat to us are the people who own most of the world and who are trying to manipulate other people into it, it staying that way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, fundamentally, if we speak to each other and we take down our barriers, we find that we're basically in the same boat. Absolutely. And just to get into philosophical territory a little bit, what do we mean by existential crises? Yes. So existential crisis is a crisis of your existence, of your life. But I have specified it as meaning that several layers of your life are affected. 
So if you have a crisis, a normal crisis, and it is just a physical thing, or it is just a social thing, you have enough equilibrium to kind of manage it. But when something hits you that tears across all the layers of your life, so you're no longer physically secure, as in the EU citizens suddenly feeling they might not be able to stay in the country, your social world is ripped apart, so you might lose your job, which is, you know, what was happening. Um, your personal layer is ripped apart. You begin to doubt yourself. You think maybe it's your fault what is happening. Your internal world is starting to fall apart, and especially your spiritual world is that ripped apart, i.e. you stop finding meaning in things it makes no sense any longer and somehow you lose your faith not in god or maybe also in god if you believed in god but in humanity in very basic things like you lose faith in justice or in the possibility of people understanding you or you lose faith in human kindness or freedom or, you know, big things like that all become distorted and ripped apart. Then you really are going through an existential crisis. And of course, in the book, I explain how that can happen in many, many different ways. It, it can happen through having an accident. It can happen through a natural disaster. It can happen through war. It can happen through, um, well, what often happens in people's life in midlife crisis, for instance, is that they might change their job and then the new job doesn't work out. Their marriage breaks up. They suddenly have no more income, no more home, no more family. That's an existential crisis too. Yeah. And the point is though, that we need to recognize it and not immediately start to speak about being traumatized, but recognize that we're dealing with a crisis situation and then know what it is we need to do, i.e. reestablish our equilibrium at all those different levels. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, we tend to have such a black and white view of crises where we think, you know, life is terrible now as opposed to where it was before. So what I really appreciated is you telling the story of your childhood trauma and your articulation that the trauma itself and the crises was a little bit, so it wasn't so much a, um, a distinction or it wasn't a uh, kind of, uh, let me see how I could phrase this. It wasn't so much of a, uh, I guess distinction is a good term. So it wasn't so much a distinction from the past as it was a revelation of past sort of struggles and past issues. So I loved how you told the story about the kind of issues that you've sort of buried deep down while you were obviously, you know, kind of going through your childhood, uh, the kind of issues that you were having with your family and being so tight knit with them, uh, the struggles with your sister being a bully, and all of those things were sort of out of mind because you were trying to survive. And as this trauma became kind of a revelation to you. So even though it compounded these issues, at the end of the day, they had to have been dealt with at some point. So yeah. can you speak a little bit about that and how trauma and crisis yeah. no, is actually, you. you're welcome. As, 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 that up. I think that is so vital really to recognize that we tend to press things down yeah we we tend to keep things under control and keep the ship on an even keel but when a crisis happens we can't do that everything 
is upside down for a bit. And what that means is that we have to find our bearings again. And it also means usually that things stop for a bit. We have to slow down, we have to think, we have to take some time out. We have to understand where everything is coming from, what has gone wrong, how that is hitting the situation we used to be in, what is still salvageable, what isn't, what needs to be jettisoned. And so a process of reflection and a process of opening up of what we used to take for granted starts to happen. And in that process, true transformation becomes possible in a way that isn't possible without that kind of crisis because we're too resistant to change. We do not like to allow that kind of transformation into our lives. If we can get away with it, we avoid it. But when it happens, out of the blue and you know we can't avoid it anymore then we can make the most of it rather than getting into a panic or thinking now everything is lost we must remember this is actually a moment where things can be looked at again and we can reorder our existence in a new way and this is what I've demonstrated both through the story of my own life, where I am sure my life opened up a lot when I had my accident at the age of 10 and had a sort of near death experience because everything was up for scrutiny. And of course, I had a lot of isolation and loneliness during that period in hospital. So I had to learn to reflect on things and I had to learn to make sense of things by myself. And I think I acquired that habit, which is vital in a crisis. And this is what existential therapists can do for people in a crisis, provide them with that platform of calm, where they can take that time, sit with the problem, not try to find the solutions, but try to get a sense of perspective, understand where all the changes are happening and how those might work out for the good in your life and what things of the past you might want to throw out while you're at it and how you might want to reorientate yourself for the rest of your life and have this new motivation, this new purpose, this new goal. And this is what we saw happening with some of the people, not all of the people, not everyone was quite able to do that yet, but some of the people who came to see us in our support service began to see this, that really, and you know, a bit like when I was 10, a lot of these people said things like, well, you know, I've lived in Britain for 15 years now. And I realized that really, although I thought I was equal, I never quite felt really like I was accepted. And what was that really about? And then they began to recognize that when you move countries, you do go into that with a bit of extra humility and you do tend to adjust and adapt rather more than you should. And you become overly modest. And they began to realize that actually they had had that kind of ghetto mentality for longer 
than the crisis that dated that predated the crisis but the crisis revealed it the crisis revealed it and tore it apart they couldn't keep it covered up anymore now they knew that they weren't at ease now they knew that this was partially because of what was happening in Britain, but it was also partially because they had chosen to become a migrant, to live in a new country, to adjust to a new language, which is a bloody big deal, let me tell you, and to therefore swallow their pride maybe rather too often. And that allowed them to stand up stronger and to decide what they wanted to do. And there are many people who decided to leave the country. Thousands and thousands and thousands of EU citizens decided to go back to another continental country in Europe. Not always their country of origin, but they just didn't want to be in that position any longer. And I can't blame them. I, I really understand it. So that is what you get out of a crisis if you allow yourself to live it to the hills, to the full, and to really allow yourself to be transformed by it for the better. And I think for a lot of us, I'm, I know I struggle with this, maybe Alan, you do too, but it's like a, a sort of a lack of confidence in the ability to handle particular crises. So what I really loved, another well, another thing I really loved about your personal story was that my my assessment of it was, I thought that when you finally had that accident, I think you finally realized that those like other issues that you were having, which much easier to resolve than actually, you know, surviving and fighting for your life in the hospital. This is true. This is true. Yeah, I hadn't quite seen that, but that is very true. These things were dwarfed in a way by the idea that right. I might have died. Right, right. And it's like, Alan, have you ever had anything like that where you felt like, you know, so something like really terrible happened to you and then you were kind of dealing with other issues and then you figured, you know what, man, maybe the other stuff isn't that hard. I mean, sure. Yeah. When, you know, facing a death in the family, yeah. let's say. Exactly. Of course, wondering how I look in the mirror. What does this person think of me? What does that right. person think of me? When somebody's dying or yes. somebody's in the hospital or something like that, your awareness completely zooms out. These small petty things are not exactly even- Exactly that, exactly that. I, I, I knew after that, you know, from the age of, of 11, 12, I often had this thought, you know, if, if I thought somebody doesn't like me or I'm not part of the most popular kids in the class, I'd think, who cares? It doesn't matter. All that matters is that I keep going and I do the right things and I read the right things and I make something of my life because I know it matters. And I knew that forever after that. And it puts a lot of things into perspective. And I think it also gave me the courage, you know, to move from the Netherlands to France, which was hard. Right. You know, speaking French instead of Dutch is pretty, pretty big change and to adjust to the south of France when you've grown up in the north of Europe is a pretty big change. And then again from France to England that again is a big shift. But throughout those things I was always aware that it was nothing by comparison to having a death threat in your life and you know having to deal as a kid 
with really important issues that you couldn't really get your head around completely, but that began dawning on you gradually in your, you know, 10 year old mind, what was really going on. Right. When do you feel like you finally figured out that you had to stand up to your sister and were able to do it? Well, that's a long story, you know. (laughs) That's another book, I think. I can't quite, <laughs> I can't quite go there yet because that's you. a very, very long story. Yeah. And it's, of course, never just your sister. It's about what that represents in the world, as you both know just as well as I do. There are always bullies in the world and there are always people that come into your life in various capacities that mess with your life in some way or that form a threat to you or the other people in your life or maybe to your children or these things are part of human existence yeah. not everybody is a nice guy yeah. This, yeah. i yeah. used to think you know we're all equal we're all we're all well-intentioned if i'm nice to people they'll be nice to me but it isn't true it just isn't true some people really just want to get advantage and you got to learn to deal with it and right. you got to learn to deal with it sooner rather than later right and, and it's i think about recognizing it isn't it <laughs> and i think we but, both I think both of us really appreciated your understanding of them and your kind of articulation of emotions, because people often think of like anger as a really negative emotion. But if you're looking at anger in the context of bullying, then standing up for yourself is actually an indicator of self-esteem and that you deserve to be treated well. Most definitely. Most definitely. Yes, I, I had never really shown any anger until I was 18 and I arrived wow. in France and then, you know, in the south of France, the people I knew there, they were so easy with their anger. It was a whole different ball game. And I just learned, I just learned to use that. And then gradually, you know, learning to turn anger into self-assertion and being strong with it. And, but I think I, it did help me a lot to spend, you know, seven years living in France in a culture where people are so upfront with their emotions because I do think it helps enormously not to suppress the emotions, but to to learn to sieve them for the gold in them. Every emotion has something of value in it. And if you can take that, harvest it as it were, well, you know, harvest it and make wine out of it, let's say, that's a very good idea. It's not a good idea to suppress emotions. We, we know that all too well in psychotherapy, don't we? But it's not a good idea to teach people just to have their emotions either. And it's certainly not a good idea to get people to exaggerate their emotions or to get into loops with their emotions or to think of themselves as having a particular emotion that kind of that characterizes them because that's simply not true. Every human body is capable of the whole range of emotions. All of us are, but you know, by habit, we become stuck in certain ones or we become incapable of expressing certain ones. So it's, it's a learning process to get at ease with each of those, to understand what they tell you and to turn them into some kind of constructive action in the world rather than remain in the reactivity. So turn the reactivity 
into activity and into directionality, into purposefulness. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, many people live their life as a, as a no to things, right? Just living in reaction. Yeah. But yeah. And, and to make, exactly. And to, to make the choice to be proactive, to, to have your own set of values, see the world through your own fresh set of eyes, not to be, not to have your beliefs dictated to you by society or by a certain group of people, or, you know, or for instance, those people who are xenophobic, for instance, and just went along with the group think, didn't necessarily try to critically think about the situation, go through mm-hmm. the nuance. What, what are these, what are these people who are on the, uh, in the out group, what, what are they experiencing? What, what are mm-hmm. their feelings like? They, they don't go that deeply into it. They just want to be, you know, with the people who uh, they can just identify with and it's just safe, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Yes, and that's going to become a bigger and bigger problem, I think, in this world because there's more and more people in the world and there's going to be more and more pressure on us as we've seen with the COVID pandemic. But, you know, the climate crisis stuff is going to get pretty pretty hot over the next decades mm-hmm. and what that means is there will be large group of people who will have to become refugees for geographic reasons and there's going to be an immigration problem all around the world and there's going to be large groups of people who will say oh well you're on your own mate that's too bad. This is what's happened in your country. We can't have you because there is no room left in our country. These are problems of the future. This is going to happen more and more and more. And we'll get mixed together more and more. And we're going to have to learn to deal with that in a fair-minded way where we don't eliminate people, you know, because of where they are coming from or the circumstances that pressurize them and yet find a way not to become oppressed by it ourselves because you know there will be pressure and tension for all of us it's going to be harder than we think i think in the future yeah and heading back into philosophical territory how have covid uh, let's say covid the refugee crisis and brexit how have they made people begin to face and kind of acknowledge these ultimate givens of existence and how do we begin to deal with them yeah well this is where i'm hopeful i am hopeful that this pandemic is doing something like that it is a moment of waking up for a lot of people People are aware that they just can't take it for granted that we can live in a world where we live in plentifulness, where we basically have no wars in our own country, where we have water and food and, you know, everything is hunky-dory and everything is rather pleasant and you know we live in El Dorado kind of thing and let's all just be happy-go-lucky and enjoy our lives and you know everything will be well ever after. People are beginning to see that this is not really how life is meant to be you know. Life is full of challenges and problems and we've tried to iron them out by mechanizing everything and gosh all the rest of it But this is now turning around on us and we're going to go through a whole phase of crisis after crisis and bad things. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen what was happening in Central Europe this week, 
<laughs> but the floods in Germany, there have been oh. huge floods in Germany, in Belgium, and also in the Netherlands, and in various other countries, some in Switzerland as well. Wow. And uh, dozens of people have died. And what you see is, you know, these floods with rivers bursting and entire villages being wiped away. And this comes from the climate crisis. This is what's being predicted, you know, floods will happen. And, you know, I'm as asleep as the next person, you know, I've been thinking, oh, climate crisis, climate crisis. How can there be floods in mountainy areas? But, you know, it comes rushing down the mountains and it wipes everything away. And then you think, well, you know, I'm a girl who grew up in the Netherlands, which is uh, 20 meters under sea level. So I've thought, oh, well, that's simple. You know, you just make more dikes and you make, you know, you preserve yourself. But it doesn't work like that. Once the sea rises, it rises in the land as well. Mm -hmm. The water levels under the land rise. So everything becomes soggy. And eventually it floods in that way. It isn't the sea breaking in. There's so many ways in which these things can go wrong. So, you know, with the ice melting and the polar caps, it, 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 there is stuff happening that is going to really change how we live. And we need to prepare ourselves for it. There'll be other pandemics too, of course, because we've interfered with the animal kingdom so much. So we yeah. are going to have more things like that. Yeah. COVID will be around for decades. It will just keep changing like, like flu, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll never get rid of it completely. We'll just have vaccinations every year for the new strains, but right. we'll never get rid of it completely. And there'll be more and more challenges like that. Life will get harder. And that's deplorable. It's horrible. And, you know, some something in me says, oh, well, I'm 70. I'm going to be OK, you know, during my lifetime. It won't get too bad. But then I think, yeah, my, my grandchildren, you know, who are young, they will have to deal with it. And that's terrible. I didn't want to leave them a world like that. So... What can we do to get people to take stock, to think about it in a new way, to not be passive so that they will be reactive when it happens, but to be active about it ahead of time and to be prepared, to be much more prepared and to be prepared in this emotional way and in this social, political way to not let the bullies be in charge, which by and large they are unfortunately, to not allow politicians to hide the problems so that we are taken aback when things burst out into the open, to, to have a thoughtful conversation about these things, to be philosophical about it, to be political about it, to be strategic about it. All of that needs to happen. And I think people are maturing towards wanting that again. They don't just want to have fun anymore. They do actually want to get it and they want to be prepared. Right. I mean, right. Uh, as far as, for example, let's take podcasting, for example. 
before podcasting became a mainstream sort of thing to do, uh, I believe people in media thought, oh, nobody has the attention span for uh, these uh, long form dialogues, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. all, not all of a sudden, but it, it took some years, but it, it seems to be that there's a large interest in, in this medium. Right. And there are people who listen the easily. Same to, thing. Yeah, to an Absolutely hour, two right. hour, Why hour is that? Time. Because people are fed up being fed, you know, pap in the larger media where they're giving given stuff to forget about everything whereas what you guys are doing is you're waking people up and you're saying well think about it this way and people will have discussions when they listen to stuff and we want that we're hungry for it we 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 know that we're not being told exactly what is going on and that we need to figure it out for ourselves and you know that's a good thing it's a good thing that we can have these conversations. For decades, we couldn't. In the 60s, we did these things on, on television. We mm -hmm. had amazing debates on television. From the 70s onwards, it started disappearing. Still in France, it was there a bit in the 70s. But by the 80s, 90s, noughties, it was gone. Nobody in television was doing this. And now look this is the kind of thing that's happening again. And this is the kind of thing that young people want. They want to inform themselves in ways that are not dictated by those in charge. They know full well that what they're being fed is not good for them. It's, it's the same as with, with food, you know? A lot of the food people eat is, is rubbish because you know it's cheap to to make it for them but people wake up to these facts they know they want better stuff it's the same with the food for the mind so you guys are doing a great job thank you thank you yeah. wow and not just us you there are other people uh i, I could think of i don't know sam harris for instance yeah. uh, there are a lot of really good people who are sort of um sending out ripples of of good influence. Right. They're having th these incremental changes. And I, I think there's hope in that. And there's always, I think, one thing that'll stay constant as far as human beings go is uh, there's a craving for authenticity, right? And yeah. if you're not getting that from the things society dictates to you, you're going to crave and look for it. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand, I understand it, is a, it is a long shot. I understand still you know, even that being said, there probably are more uh, people who are awake than there used to be. Maybe that's in my mind. I don't actually, I don't have the statistics for it, obviously. Mm -hmm. I know Steven Pinker says the world is uh, getting, getting better, better as right. far as that goes, but then we do have climate change to contend with and well, all yeah. that, so. Well, I, I, I like to think he is right to some extent about that. I think people are more inclined to want to understand things than they ever were. But there is also a lot more to understand and there is a lot to confuse us and to um, keep us looking in the wrong direction. We are being distracted much more than we ever were. There yeah. are still a lot of people who believe what they're being told. And there are still a lot of people who just want to watch daytime television and go into a daze, you know, having lots of beers. And there are a lot of people who find the world a very difficult place and who don't feel brave enough to stand up and be counted. 
But if you give them a way to do it, I think they will, though. I think you're right about that. I think people do want that sense of realness and that sense of feeling that, yes, this is important or this is meaningful to me or this touches my own life. This is something I have thought about. This is something that matters to me. That is absolutely right. And that is certainly happening to more people than ever before. To that extent, I agree with, with Steve. Right. And then, so how can we instill sort of, uh, I guess, a sense of existential courage and use some of these existential philosophical ideas to help people become less afraid? And uh, let's so use denial as a defense, as a major defense. Well, how can we do it? It's by educating people, giving them the tools. And that's about not just doing it in a highbrow way, but also in a lowbrow way. It's about people creating cartoons about it. It's about, you know, some mainstream people starting to play with it. It's about artists doing things with it. It's about people putting it in their pop songs. It's about it getting spread around in all the many multifarious ways that we have to be cultural. And that takes time, but I have no doubt at all that that is what is happening because with the pandemic, actors and artists and many people have been through hell and back and they're all really thinking about things. They're, they're, a lot of them are going through crises and I think they will be picking up on all this stuff and so there will be many people at many different layers of society who will get interested in this way of looking at it and who will be starting to talk about it and spread those messages that will happen. And eventually it will get through to some of the good politicians because there are some, you know, genuine politicians who want to make the world a better place. They tend to not last too long in politics, but there are some good ones they will pick these ideas up and they already have you know i have often in the last few years spoken to politicians i've spoken in the european parliament i've spoken with a lot of members of parliament european members of parliament there are a lot of people in that field who were dumbfounded you know who said what do we do with all this how can we stand up to all this that's going on in the world. A lot of politicians are at a loss, you know. They feel overly responsible for what's happening in the world. They don't have all this knowledge that you need to have in order to change things for the better. It's a big job to change the world, to save the world. The politicians are not gonna do it on their own. Mm -hmm. It'll never happen. It needs all of us. And then, so, right, and touching on the importance of community, how do existential crises cause people to become disconnected and sort of despondent? How did they, um, how did they kind of, yeah, how did they sort of disassociate them from the things that pretty much matter around them? Absolutely right. So that's the first impulse. It's to disconnect because actually your world has been disconnected. So you want to, well, you want to really um, shelter and you want to give yourself safety. So you tend to turn away. But you do that for a bit until you got some basic safety and then you need to build communities. 
And it's not just about turning to the community you're a part of. It's about realizing that because of your crisis, you're, you're usually not alone in your crisis. Crises are often shared by many people around you. You can actually create a new layer of community. You can create new channels, new ways of thinking about things, talking about things, and that becomes exhilarating that really becomes exhilarating because then you feel you've actually been saved from your isolation. You discover these wonderful things. You discover friendship, solidarity. You discover shared ideals. You discover activism. You discover human rights. You discover that you have so much in common with other people who have been through crises, other people who are in a difficult situation. And when we can start building bridges between the different groups that are disenfranchised and help them see that they can help each other, mm -hmm. then we're rebuilding a world that is worth living in. And then it feels like it's worth giving your life's energy to it because it feels good rather than it feeling exhausting it feels good and then how do we understand reactive populism and all of this right so because obviously on the one hand it's just pretty much this menace but then on the other hand you also understand why people feel disempowered and disenfranchised and you know kind of just in a way ineffective right so how do we hold those two paradoxes to, or that paradox together those two contradictions well, it's the same thing, really, like most contradictions, it's two sides of the same coin. So one thing I began to understand after having railed against populism for the first two years, I mm -hmm. began to understand that the politicians are completely lost and they have been taught by the psychologists, ironically, that, you know, you don't have to make it all up. You just ask the people what they want. And then, you know, you do these um, surveys or you have these groups, you know, and you listen to what their frustrations are and what they want. And then you give them what they want. And this is how you create a populist politics. But a populist politics is not going to give the people what they need mm -hmm. because the people have not yet been given the tools or the education to think through their problems. They're just stuck with their problems. And they say to the politicians, oh, give us a bit more money for this or do a bit more of that. Or if you kicked out these darker people, then we would feel a lot better because, you know, there wouldn't be so many people competing for the jobs and then these politicians who really are quite ignorant as i said before a lot of the time they think oh well that will make me popular maybe they're right maybe that is what i should be saying i'm doing and then before they know it that is what they're doing so it's the dog wagging the tail uh, the, the yeah the other way around you know the tail wagging the wagging dog the mm -hmm. it's as if things have been turned upside down. It's become topsy-turvy. People do not know why they're doing what they're doing. Politicians are in the dark. They're just constantly changing their minds about things. As I said, it's really difficult to know enough to oversee the future, to oversee all the problems. 
you know, having gotten that close in to the political pro, uh, process, I've sat in meetings where people were tearing their hair out and saying, but what can we possibly do about it? If we do X, then Y will happen. If we do A, then B will happen. We can't win this. So really, we should just stop this and stop people protesting or stop. And they get panicky about it. They can't engage because if they engage, they lose their perspective. They get drawn into people's misery. It is like politicians are untrained psychotherapists doing psychotherapy with a bunch of suicidal people and they get attacked from all over the place. It reminded me a bit of when I first started working in psychiatry about 50 years ago and I was thrown in at the deep end. I had to run a group pretty, pretty well on my own and they were, it became so popular. There were like 80 schizophrenics in the group at times, a large group experience. So there were some nurses in the room, but it was still my responsibility. And I would throw up every Saturday morning. I had to run it from 10 to 12. And at nine o'clock, like clockwork, I felt sick for the responsibility. I look at some of the politicians I know, and I can see the same thing. They have no idea what the hell they're doing and nobody's trained them. They don't understand what people need. They don't understand about justice. They don't understand about how to really make equality a reality. And then, you know, they're often led by very greedy people, people who really just want to use the power trip to get a load of money for themselves and their mates. And they're devious and they use nasty tricks, dirty tricks. And it's very difficult to stand up to that kind of bully. That's, you know, your high level kind of bully. And so they give up. A lot of the politicians give up. They just make do. They just do the minimum and they just try to get by. And it's not good enough, guys. It's not good enough when a psychotherapist tries to get by. They've got to understand people's problems and they've got to stand strong with it and have a sense of how they can help people really to understand their lives. If they can't, then they might make things worse. Well, I think we often have politicians who are making things worse rather than making things better and who think in the short term and right. in terms of their own popularity or longevity rather than in terms of what can actually be done. Yeah, well, because I mean, here, you know, we've obviously Trump has been removed for already some time. Uh, so what's the situation there with Boris Johnson? I mean, what are his approval ratings? They must be incredibly low. He is incredibly popular still. Wow. This is what is completely, well, you know, sometimes I think, I think these, these must be numbers that are just being fabricated. <laughs> I just cannot believe it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I think, well, you know, people identify with him. They see him making mistake after mistake and they think, oh yeah, he's just like us. He's mm. nothing like them. He is a privileged person who is very much interested in staying a privileged person. 
I actually think that he must have a very hard time of it because, you know, he's going through hell and back and I wouldn't like to be in his position. I wouldn't like how to sort things out. It's very difficult. Right. It's a very difficult situation by now. He's messed up so much, you know. How is he going to sort it out? Right. How is he still that popular, though? I can't even imagine that being the case. Unbelievable. It's, um, yeah. it's not just him, though. It's the whole damn government. Mm -hmm. Well, and, I mean, it's really... It was bad well I, I don't have to tell you anything you've been through this in the usa come on you you know what it's like you yeah. just you just don't understand that you want to throw your hand up in the air and say well we'll just have to wait until it finishes because what can we do yeah. you just got to get rid of this government and that's it but then we're not out of the woods because yeah. you know we still got the problems that's what you see now you know okay so you got a much better government but you're not out of the woods. There's still lots of problems to resolve. Yep. I think it's the the amount of compliance, um, like people, like figures like Boris Johnson or Trump had with people. They whoever was uh, with them or is with them, they invested so much in them that for them to deny them now, it's as if you know it, it'd be like a a form of death, so to speak. Mm. You know. Yeah. Like at least in terms of the, in terms of their identities identity right i think that's right and i think we need to go back to what we said earlier we also need to try to understand why that is because not all of those people have profit or profiteering motives mm -hmm. some people truly believe that that kind of right-wing approach is the right way forward, you know, and we need to really come to grips with this. As long as there are so many people in so many countries who truly believe that we need to put an elite in power and people, there should be an elite that's much richer than the others and we should just have measures that eliminate some of the plebs and one of the lower ranks because they're rubbish people anyway, so let them die in a pandemic, fine, you know, it doesn't matter. This, this is, why do people believe that? And, you know, how can we engage with that philosophy? These, these are real ideological issues that nobody is really talking about properly. There are many people who believe these things. There are many people who believe that if only we put the right people in charge and we get rid, you know, we let a lot of people die, then the world will be a better place. And this sort of ideology will get much stronger when we see, you know, billions and billions and billions more people, and we see so much pressure on the world's resources and things getting harder. Mm -hmm. This is going to become a challenge in the future. Ideology. Yeah, and I also wonder if when Brexit finally comes to fruition, if let's say, you know, millions of people are kind of expelled, would there be an economic collapse because of it? It already is happening. Is it? Okay. There are many shops that haven't got uh, as much food in them as they used to have. Right. They can't get the nurses to work in the NHS anymore. Right. These were all EU citizens who held those jobs. You know, They can't find fruit pickers, so we don't get the fresh fruit coming into the shops. 
there are already lots and lots of problems like that, but they're being covered up by COVID at the moment. Oh, wow. So the country uh, is in real trouble and it will become obvious over the yeah. next years. It's very slow, though. Well, I mean, do you anticipate there being some sort of regression then? Would I guess the citizens in itself kind of like turn back after seeing where it's going? I think people will wake up at some point and there will be a revolt. Then right. there will be a new government. There might be a, a, a difficult time to get to it, but there will be a new government and that new mm -hmm. government will have to rejoin the single market almost immediately this country cannot survive right. without having economic arrangements with 27 of its next door neighbors. It cannot survive without being part of the single market. It will have to do that. Right, right. and then if we're looking at kind of existential crises as a form or kind of uh, as the catalyst for transformation, the idea hopefully is people become not only more politically aware, but also more globally aware. And you understand how, you know, kind of we all depend on each other, regardless of whatever your race is or nationality. This is it. We all depend on each other. Yeah. We're one network. We're one network around the world. There are no borders of nations. The earth is one place and these borders are artificial. And what you put in the air comes over to a different country. If there is a nuclear disaster, as we saw with Chernobyl in Russia, it will come to every other country. It goes around. There are no barriers. We cannot stop it. And when climate change really bites, there won't be national barriers to the movements of people that we will see in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. But of course, when you look at history, you will see that mass movements of people have happened historically on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that's such a great cutoff point. So, because uh, it was just so wonderful. Uh, oh, yeah. Any final? The time, time passes. Yeah, time passes. Wow. <laughs> time passes pretty quickly. Wow. Any final questions for me before we wrap up? Well, there's a lot I wanted to say, but okay, fair enough. Uh, I noticed in your book, uh, there was some mention of uh, Eckhart Tolle. Uh, <laughs> how did you become acquainted with his uh, work? Ha, it was really my mother who got into his work. <laughs> when she was in the final years of her life she died at 92 and in the last two or three years she became quite an admirer of several people like Eckhart Tolle and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and people mm. like that and we were always talking about so I, I read these books that she was reading and we would discuss them and you know I was interested in she and her friends, you know, all the elderly ladies in her in the house where she lived, you know, they were all into these things. So interesting, you know, these these people, as they were getting closer to death, they 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 found their old religions were no good for them. Wow. And they all got interested in these spiritual ideas. And this is this is what they all needed to help them towards death. So that inspired me. Wow. Yeah, I mean his his framing is not bad. It's it's it doesn't have too much of that um like mystical. It, it's not I mean it's there, but it's yeah, it's it's, it's also practical. Deep. It's 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 quite a sort of easy kind of it's a it's um 
a message made easy for the masses, I think. Yeah. And as I said earlier, we need this message to get across in so many different ways. We are not in competition with each other. We need all the good voices we can get to pass the messages across by images, by films, by easy books, by middling books, by difficult books, by debates, by it needs to be done by everyone who is willing to do it. So, you know, there's room under the sun for, for all those people. Yeah, of course, you know, so people can resonate, Yeah. right? They can find what they resonate with, right? That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For, I guess, different levels of like engagement. Sure. Uh, like you said earlier, somebody might do it through a pop song and somebody may find yeah, their answer there. They might find a way yes. to be present. And many young people, you know, when I think back to my own teenage years, you know, it was the Beatles, of course. But you mm -hmm. know, many of the messages in the pop songs stayed stuck in your head, and you go over them, and they gave you strength, and they mm -hmm. got you through things. These things are remarkably important. They are one of the ways in which we create community today, and they matter. Yeah, I mean, the, wow, that even though makes me think of the Vietnam War and that Black Sabbath song, War Pigs, right? Uh, have you ever heard it? Yeah, generals course. gathered in their masses. And it's like, literally, you have a whole group of people singing in unison. Absolutely amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, well, you know, people like Joan Baez and that's right. they, they were amazing. Yeah, and I would also mention Tupac Shakur as well, because I have to. So he was another another revolutionary figure. All right. Well, uh, I mean, if, if you wanted to, well, this uh, could be a whole other, whole other thing, you know, talking about pop music <laughs> and psychotherapy, <laughs> absolutely, and movies and psychotherapy. Oh, that's definitely, a hundred percent, definitely. So, if we wanted to follow you and follow your work, uh, where where could we find you? Okay, so you can find me everywhere, really, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. That's Emmy Zen. And you can find me on YouTube as well. I got over a hundred little clips on various topics. And you're very welcome to follow me on YouTube and to ask me for something on something that preoccupies you and that worries you. And I'll be happy to do a little clip. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emmy, for coming back on. Pleasure. All right, See we'll talk guys. to you soon. Bye. Bye. That was right. wow. That was yeah. awesome. I didn't notice the time pass. I know, I know. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> Even at the end there, I, instead of saying take care, I said take well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so everyone, uh, please buy the book. Again, it's called Rising from Existential Crisis, Life Beyond Calamity. Uh, it's out now on Amazon, wherever else, other booksellers. And if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. bell. And thank you so See much you for next watching. Time. <laughs>